This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. First of all, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay. It's been an interesting year, of course, for everyone. And we've had an interesting year at Monzo. It's been really busy, ups and downs. But the last few weeks especially, feel pretty nice. And yeah, just kind of used to working from home now. Used to, you know, this kind of everything from the sofa type lifestyle. So I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And it's really busy. And first of all, I'm trying to keep myself busy because life is really stressful right now. In Israel, it's like a lot of politics going on. Yeah. And lack of trust in governments. And you don't know if it's the pandemic or political stuff. And moral is down for many people. Mm. And I can see it with my friends also, a lot of unemployment, and it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. I was actually uh, supposed to fly to see you speak in Content by Design Conference. I had a ticket. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And I bought it, I think, in like February or March, and then like had yeah. to cancel it because yeah. you can't fly anywhere. I'm not sure if it even happened eventually, but... No, they postponed till next year. There was kind of a truncated version with a few different speakers from, you know, from their sofas. But the actual conference is going to go be in uh, 2021. Yeah. In theory. We'll see. Ho- hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and yeah, I hope I could fly and, and see your talk. And uh, let's do a small introduction first. Um, so today we have uh, Harry Ashbridge from, and I'm very excited about it, from Monzo Bank. And Monzo Bank, it's a neobank, and Harry is going to tell us in a few minutes what is a neobank even. Mm-hmm. Sure. And yeah, I was very excited to speak with him and to reach out to him, and I was waiting really excitingly to this conversation. So welcome, Harry. How are you? Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm good. It's been a while. We spoke about doing this a while ago, and it took a little bit of time to arrange, but I'm glad we're finally here. I'm also glad. I'm very happy that we made this happen. Um, so... The first thing I wanted to ask you is what is a Monzo Bank and how is it different from like a banking app of my old school bank? Sure, sure. So yeah, Monzo, we are, I guess you could still call us a startup bank. We've been around for about five years now and had a full banking license, which makes us a bank in the UK in the same way that Barclays or Lloyd's or NatWest is for coming up on three years now. Um, In many ways, we're not different from those banks in terms of you put your money with us, you get your salary paid in, there's protections, we're regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the banking regulator in the UK and all the other, you know, things that keep customers and the banking system safe. What makes us different is that kind of the founding reason that we exist is that the people who started Monzo in the first place were just feeling like the banking system finance in general is a bit of a closed shop you know, most banks have been around for a very long time. They've been doing things the same way for a very long time. I think it's fair to say that they're not seen as being very customer centric. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like traditional banking exists to serve and solve problems for customers. Yep. It seems like traditional banking exists to sell products to customers over the lifetime of being a customer. So you get a junior account and then you get your overdraft when you're a student and then you get your mortgage and then you get your pension and it's, you know, you're hooked into a system that doesn't really revolve around you. And basically Monzo exists to go, okay, the issues with money are overly complex. Your money should just be easy. It should work for you. It shouldn't be a hassle. You shouldn't have to deal with systems that aren't built for you. You shouldn't have to deal with language, especially, which obviously we're going to talk about, that doesn't really work for you. It's overly complex. It's overly opaque. It doesn't really feel like it's for the people it's supposed to serve. And so a few people 
had the mad idea to start a bank and try and turn that around. And we are now four and a half million customers in the UK. We are the last time out, we were the second most popular brand in the country. We were first last year, and then this year we've dropped one place, which is a shame. And that's not banking, that's brand overall. Um, So clearly people have this kind of feeling that something needed to change with finance. And Monzo is one of the the companies that's come along and kind of tried to fill that need for people. I still feel like, you know, we're not there yet in a way that I'm signed to an old school bank. And they definitely didn't know what to do with the COVID-19 stuff. So I was actually going to the bank physically to take care of something that I really didn't want to go to the bank because nobody wants to go to the bank. You want to just take care of it in the internet or something like that or with your app. And then while I'm there, they told me, we can't treat you right now because you need to book an appointment. So they sent me to a phone. So I'm in the bank and I'm calling them in the phone. And then they asked me, what's my secret number? And I told them, I don't know my secret number. So they told me, okay, so we need to file a request from the app. So I'm closing my phone, I'm filing a request from the app, just so that I could pick up the phone, just so I could book an appointment while I'm there. And then I booked a report on the app of the bank, and then they told me, please wait for two more days, and then we could reach out back to you. And since then, I just didn't solve my financial stuff because I'm a mess, yeah. but also because like it's really problematic to handle this kind of like dinosaur system. So I'm happy there is a company like Monzo and uh, I hope that they will operate in Israel too at some point. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, the plan is to be global eventually. It's going to take some time, but that would be nice. Yeah. This is the thing about starting from scratch five years ago is that all the technology is also new. Those legacy systems that banks have, none of them were designed to not work together or to be slow or to be inefficient. But when you build one thing and then 20 years later, you build another one. Funnily enough, they don't communicate very well. All of Monzo's technology is built in-house pretty much. And it's built around going. If the experience for the customer should be good, what does that look like? And you get to do that from the ground up. And surprisingly, people like it more. (laughs) Of course. And one of the things, the first time I ever exposed to Monzo was from the Voice and Tone style guide. So that one was really well written. And I'll put it also in the show notes. And so the fact that you have some kind of a style guide that, you know, make the experience consistent for the all app. And it's really well written, you know, with the emojis and the values. It was really well written. By the way, is it something that uh, you've been working on? Yeah, that was my baby. That was pretty much the first thing I did when I went to Monzo. Uh, Good job. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to sit here and take the compliments. Thank you. Yeah. Part of the reason why I joined Monzo in the first place was that it felt from the outside like they had an innate sense of style and they had a commitment to transparency and their language was not that of traditional banking. And they were very open about what they were doing and why, and it had the kind of values that I believed in. And so I pitched to them the idea that somebody needs to look after this because it won't grow with you at scale unless you tend it properly. You have to have a a team of people that will look after this. They were 200-ish people at the time when I joined. That's fine. You can have a few people who care and they go around doing kind of a careful language job off the side of their desk and it's not their main role. But if you want to have this last 1,000 people or 2,000 people or in 20 countries, you need a team. And they said, okay, good idea. You can have that job, which is great. And so my job is to, it was then and still is now, to look after all of the writing that Monzo does internally, externally. So it's certainly like 
what you can see UX writing in the app and on the website, but it's broader. It's all of the communication, all of the written communication that Monzo does to itself and to customers. And the first step of that is going, okay, well, let's have an agreed set of principles. And that's what that tone of voice guidelines is about. It's step 1.1 in having a tone of voice that people actually adhere to and use and has some mm-hmm. value. But it was the first thing that I did, because if you don't have that agreed set of this is what we believe in, you can't do any of the other stuff that needs to come on top. And how do you make sure that people would actually use it in their organization? Yeah. That's a tough uh, one. Yeah. Well, writing it doesn't do that. Like most companies have a tone of voice guide. Some of them are beautifully written mm-hmm. and everyone goes, oh, brilliant. And then they put the tone of voice in a drawer and then they close the drawer and right. then they never look at it again. Training is the main thing that we do. So in my previous life as a writing consultant, we did big tone of voice programs and created tone of voice guidelines. But the main thing that we did that was differentiating from other companies was training. So writing training for every single person in the business. So I have run and continue to run training sessions for everyone at Monzo, whether you're mm-hmm. a backend engineer, whether you're in the legal team, whether you're a designer, whether you're a customer service, tone of voice training, writing training. Partly it's about getting people consistent with the brand and understanding how we communicate, but also partly it's because every person, part of their job, a big part of their job is writing. Everybody is a writer, whether they think of themselves as one or not. And if you, as a writer in a business, want to be able to create good, consistent writing around the business, you need the buy-in of the legal team. You need the buy-in of the engineers. You need the buy-in of the product managers. And also, they will all be better at their jobs if they write better. If a product manager writes a better proposal, they will be more likely to get their product off the ground. If an engineer writes better you know, commit messages in GitHub, other engineers are going to find it easier to come along and review their code. Like Mm -hmm. everybody is better at their job if they're better at writing. And so that is why if you want people to buy into a tone of voice, you say to them, first of all, here's how to do it practically. That's what the training is. But also if you care about this and you're good at writing, you will be better at your job as well. And if you give them both of those things, then people tend to pay attention. Amazing. And is it like a, one training for the developers and completely different training for the product managers, or you have like one type of training for all of them? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's onboarding training for everyone comes into Monzo, which is kind of two parts therapy, one part practical, because people, especially who aren't writers by background, have ideas about professionalism in writing and, you know, formality and seriousness and how those are supposedly the same. And we're a bank. And so we have to sound a certain way. So you have to kind of unpick those ideas gently with the first bit of training and then we do have some specific stuff so we have product writing training which is essentially ux writing training Mm -hmm. which is for engineers product designers user researchers product marketers those people who are mainly interacting with copy in the app and on the website i've also run training for risk and compliance which is about how to write risk controls in a way that's clear and easy for other people to understand how to write reports for the regulator which get read for the hiring team on how to write job ads that are going to be more enticing and more representative of what you really want and get the candidates that you want down the funnel. Like, so there is some specialism, but it all starts from a foundation, which is, which is very similar, which is about writing matters. Here's why, and here's how to do the basic stuff that we all need to do to just be better at our jobs and representing Monzo in the right way. That's amazing. So how many trainings do you run in so do you have like booked a training every week or every day or every yeah. month? How, how yeah. do you, what is it? At the minute, 
it's a lot less than it was because we're not hiring as much. At times last year, we were doing four onboarding sessions a week because we were hiring so many people. All of this used to be face-to-face. Face-to-face training is the best kind, I think, still. But now we have digital versions, which are video through like a learning management system that we have. We still do some like Zoom, Google Hangout calls like this occasionally. At the minute, it's probably like maybe one session every couple of weeks and then some specific training for specific teams. But the onboarding stuff is a much less regular cadence at the minute. But basically, every time 10-ish people join, we're going to run a session for those people because that's the onboarding stuff and other stuff is ad hoc. If I understood correctly, the onboarding stuff is whenever we're hiring a new person, we're going to teach them how this organization writes and probably introducing to them the voice and tones target of our organization and do's and don'ts of like from writing emails to internal communication and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. The onboarding stuff is really kind of medium neutral like in the room you will have a risk and compliance advisor and you'll have a back-end engineer and you'll have someone from the hiring team so i don't just want to talk about emails because it's relevant to different people it's really about going if you want to do good writing you need to care about your audience who's your audience that is different for all of you but they all have some things in common which is they're busy they've got better things to do it's hard to get their attention you know write for them what does that mean for you and here's how to do that practically. And then everyone goes away from it with something they can take to their job, even though their jobs are different things. And the other thing that the training does is it introduces the idea of, you know, if you want people to trust you, you need to communicate better. If you want people to do the things that you're asking them, you need to communicate better. You need to be able to write well. And so it just has this kind of getting people to think about the brand, customer centricity, whether your customers are people within Monzo or literal banking customers, The same principles apply. People are busy. They have a lot on their plate. They've got other things to be doing. And so if you want to grab their attention and get them to do something, here are some basic principles that can apply no matter what writing you're doing or or who it's for. That's an amazing tip. And so I want to step back a little bit. And you said that you brought to the table the fact that, okay, we need to create this kind of voice and tone standard. So originally you were hired to do it or it was after you were hired that you brought this idea to the table? Yeah. So there was no, there was no job ad for a writer at Monzo in the sense of what I do. I kind of sneaked my way in by talking uh-huh. to a few people. Um, and I pitched and said, what you have here is really good. And to maintain it, you need somebody who will come in and maintain it and build a team out that can maintain it. And one of those things will be creating a formalized tone of voice. One of those things will be training. One of those things will be getting involved in processes. So I'm involved in the hiring tests that we use to hire internal comms people and designers and product marketers so that they have the right kind of writing skills at the point we hire them, right? So it's a compounding effect. So it's, it's people, processes, systems, all that kind of stuff. One bit of which is, is the guidelines. Um, they're the public bit but they are just one factor in in the whole kind of deal. I love uh, the fact that you kind of told them that, you know, reached out and told them that they need to have that kind of position. I think that in the UX writing community in general, there's a lot of education that we need to do to the market for people to understand, hey, you need that. Okay, some people don't know that they even need it. And that's creating like huge boundaries between people that want to get into the field and companies that need it, but, there's a lot of, you know, there's like a wall in between. So 
yeah. think just reaching out to these companies, showing them what you've got, and, and maybe present them different ideas of how you could help them. I think it's a really cool way to, you know, to find your first opportunity in a company as a UX writer uh, and build yeah. your career. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, I know we're on the UX writing hub and talking a lot about UX writing. I certainly don't consider myself a UX writer. We actually don't have any UX writers, although our writers do do a lot of UX writing. Eventually, a scale bigger than ours, we might want to look at specialist writers who focus on narrow things. But the role of a writer, as I've seen it at Monzo, is to empower other people to do better writing as much as to do good writing ourselves. And so the profile of people that we've looked at are people who can do a broad range of writing and can really hone in on that training side as well. So for example, if we'd hired three UX writers and put them in product squads, those three product squads individually would do great writing. But I wanted to hire a couple of people who could oversee those three squads and train them and also then work with the legal compliance team that advises those squads on what the T's and C's say, or think about the design system at a higher level that can influence, okay, what kind of components are we using here? How does that tie in with the SEO that we do on the website? How does that tie in with our brand positioning? Like what's our messaging strategy for this product in a way that traditionally, as I've seen at UX writers, like you say, there's kind of a wall up. I want to take those walls down and get people thinking holistically about all of the writing that they do, internal comms as much as customer comms. You know, how do engineers actually write proposals that then get turned into code? Can designers understand that? Do they understand the trade-offs that engineers are making? How can we get those two groups of people talking better together? Well, writing is the medium that they use. And so a writer shouldn't just be at one end of that process. They should be all the way through influencing how those people think about their jobs making them both better at explaining what they need and what their dependencies are because that leads to a better product at the other end. I think that's a very smart way to look at it. And I've heard about m- more companies that are trying to, you know, even UX writers that are dedicated into squads, they still have like uh, office hours and they're trying to do this kind of training yeah. holistically through all the organizations. So I think yeah. it's a very smart idea. Yeah. What do you think should be, by the way, the ratio between like writers and designers and... Yeah, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. Honestly, I don't know. I think it depends on the size of the business. And I think it depends on how the rest of the business outside the writing function thinks about writing. So for us, we have way more designers than writers. And that is a conscious choice because the writers that we've looked to hire are people specifically with the ability to influence those designers thinking, train them, support materials. And also in the designer hiring process, we optimize for people who are good writers. Like that's part of the criteria. Not all companies will do that. If you're in a company where the designers are going to go, no, we just want designers and it's all about the pixels. You need more writers to balance that out. But in a company where there's a kind of a culture of care for language more broadly, which is what we've tried to do at Monzo, I think you can get away with fewer writers at a higher level who have a broader influence and have a kind of a more consultative relationship where they don't literally write every word. Having said that, there is a benefit to there being a researcher and a writer and a designer at every step of the process all the way through. And if you can afford that, 
amazing, go nuts. But if you're making a trade-off, I think that you don't necessarily need a one-to-one ratio of designers and writers. A designer is a writer and a writer is a designer. Mm-hmm. And so you can balance those things off depending on what your priorities are elsewhere. I don't know that there's a company that's, that's nailed this ratio. I haven't seen, I've seen it done very differently and work very well in different ways. It depends on what else is going on in the business, I think. Right. I think that uh, many, many, many companies are trying to figure it out right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have very big companies that hiring many writers right now, and you have mm-hmm. uh, companies that are looking about it a little bit more realistically, and uh, we will know in the next few years what will be probably the sweet spot of the ratio in product teams, and I guess it's going to change between different products and stuff like that, of course. Exactly, yeah. They said that I'm sure that we're going to have also products that I'm going to be so much more language oriented that we might even have more writers than visual designers at some point. Yeah, exactly. One thing I would say is that if you have an issue with writing and the quality of your writing as a business, the answer is probably not to just hire more writers. Like there's likely to be a more fundamental issue about, okay, what's making people not care about this stuff? What's making designers produce copy that doesn't match what you want it to what's making product managers not optimize for the quality of the copy in your product if you just hire a writer are they going to have the same barriers is it about how those people think about language have you not made the case well enough in the business for why writing is important and what the business impacts that it can have you might need more writers or you might just need to formalize the processes around what you produce in a way that gets better writing done at the source you know there's other ways to approach it what would be a tip to Make sure that people will care about what you write. So the way that I did it, the Trojan horse is the training. You know, I was a writer in a company of 200 people. They all kind of roughly cared about writing and, you know, they got the importance of it. But because I was running training sessions, you had 10 to 15 people coming in and sitting in a room with me for two hours where all I did was ask them about language and talk to them about language and show them research and evidence and stats that prove that whatever they're doing, they would be better at it and customers would like it more if the language was better. Mm-hmm. And if you do that for everyone for two and a half years, it starts to, you know, it beds into the culture. Obviously, if you're in a bigger company and you're trying to make an impact for a thing that's already at scale, you want like quick wins of proof that language can make a difference. Like tone of voice. I've seen a bunch of articles recently of people saying, is tone of voice dead? Is tone of voice gone? And like, I think what they're getting at is that When you talk about tone of voice, a lot of people's eyes just glaze over because they think of it as some kind of a fluffy brand thing. And I'm not really interested in tone of voice. I'm interested in if you are better at using words, you'll be better at your job and the business will benefit as a result. And so how do you prove that? And so you get evidence that if we change this, the conversion is that. And if we change this, you get more people signing up here. And if you change this, people like us more. And you can measure that if you are focused. And if you have the right kind of processes in place to let you track the difference that language can make. And, you know, especially in fintechs, tech companies in general, they want data. You can find data that proves that language makes an impact. And if you start doing that, it becomes very hard to ignore or consider language a fluffy brand thing that kind of gets relegated to, can you just tone a voice this? Or can we just polish the words here? Like, no, it's, it's a fundamental part of the process. And if you think about it that way and you can prove it that way, that's what gets people to take it more seriously. And what kind of data points do you look at when trying to prove the value of uh, content impact? Yeah. So for, for some examples, you know, when I was in my previous job to Monzo, we used to go and pitch to clients and we had 
hundreds of case studies of just changing words, making an impact. We had one great one for a, a big old client of ours was BT, British Telecom. We did tone of voice training for them. And out of one of those training sessions, somebody in the customer service team, they had a call center team that they looked after and they had scripts that they used for that call center. And they went away and they looked at that script and they said, oh, you know, this is a little bit formal. It's a bit overcomplicated. Customers don't really understand it. So they rewrote the script to be clearer, more customer centric, easier to follow, less jargon. And in the process of doing that, they cut the length of the script by 13 seconds. And then they compounded that cut across all of the calls that a company the size of BT handles. And it turned out that over a couple of years, it saved them about six and a half million pounds. Well, and all they did was rewrite a script and they cut maybe 200 words out of that script. And you think, okay, well, how much did that cost? And all that is, is care for language, right? If they care enough about the language, and really that is just care for customers. If you care enough about customers to care about your language, the business benefits are these, you know? Right. And this is also without even going into the actual content itself. We're just right. talking about like editing stuff out. Exactly. That's just even if you care about the very most basic element of can this language be clearer for people? If you're being a bit, you know, cleverer, for an example of on the monzo.com homepage, for a while it said bank of the future. I think it might say bank of the future again. Now we run tests. We changed it once to say, at the time it was 40,000 people a week are opening a Monzo account. Now it says banking uh, made easy, which banking I Banking made easy. Way. Right, there you go. Love it, love yeah. it. Yeah, it said, uh, it said something like 40,000 people a week are opening a Monzo account to manage their money better or something like that. And when we changed that, 15% more people downloaded the Monzo app. And that was all we changed. 15%. Yeah, we didn't change the design. The website performed at the same rate. Nothing else apart from those words. We've had similar kind of conversion changes from wording in the app around overdrafts, around loans, around, you know, anything. And obviously you can compound that by changing, does the website load faster? You know, do we have better SEO so we rank higher? Do we get better design that, you know, draws people to the right things? Mm -hmm. But you can isolate words and you can prove that words alone have a, I think, disproportionately large impact to what people expect outside the US community anyway. Inside it, we all know what a difference it can make. But if you need to make that case outside, there are ways to do it. Yeah. And by the way, when you look in the data, you can definitely know if it's people that sign up from the homepage and not because of an article or something like that. And it's really exactly. easy to, to go through this data and understand that it's only like this small change that yeah. uh, brought more yeah. conversions. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. Um, pretty amazing. And uh, I wanted to ask you also, okay, so we're talking about a banking app. Now in Israel, also we have this, we don't have neobanks yet, but we have banks that are doing pretty cool banking apps. You know what I mean? Mm. Like really intuitive, nice, like they hire like big design brands and they're doing pretty cool apps, but we don't have that kind of neobank app in Israel, even though I really want to have a bank that I don't need to go to physically. So yeah. what are the challenges when creating a fintech, when writing for a fintech app? I know that your background is not in fintech, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, not at all. I, in my old life as a consultant, I had a lot of banking clients and they would, you know, they would all certainly think of themselves as digital businesses, but they're also very big old legacy banks. So not really. To flip that around a little bit, what 
makes writing for Monzo relatively easy is that genuinely we care about the right things. Like the products are built in such a way that it is customer centric. And so there is no challenge to write around a bad process or explain why if you go into the branch, you have to then go and sit on a phone to then download a thing to your app to then get a letter four days later. That doesn't happen because the process is designed in the right way. Also, there is a commitment to transparency that means that genuinely we are open about what we're doing and why we're doing it. So it's easy to write about what we're doing and why we're doing it because it's for customers. It's for the right reasons. If you're a big bank that adds, you know, a markup to the foreign exchange rate when people go and spend abroad and that's hidden, how are you going to write about that unless you want to be open that you're essentially ripping people off? And so it's harder if the values aren't really there in the first place. And there are a lot of big legacy institutions at the moment, which are, you know, doing innovative product things in terms of the apps and what they're launching and pain design agencies and all that kind of stuff. I don't know, but how deep does that commitment to being customer centric really go? Are they genuinely changing how they function as a business and what they reward people for and how they build what they do? Or are they going, let's have a nice app? Because if it's the latter, you'll have a lot harder time as a writer making that come true for people because they're not going to buy into it because consistency is what really matters in the experience for customers, right? Like people often ask a question around what makes Monzo stand out in terms of the tone of voice? We don't have a standout tone of voice. Like I've never intended for us to be distinctive. I know for a fact that lots of big banks in the UK have a very similar tone of voice set of guidelines to ours because the company I worked for wrote them. Like I worked on them. I know what they say and it's not different. It's use normal language that people can understand, be open and honest, explain what matters to people and care about where they are when they receive this information. And if you do that, you've got pretty good writing. What makes us different is that we really genuinely try and do it everywhere all the time. And I think if you have a fintech bank, you know, a neo bank with an app and that app is nice and slick and smooth and really easy and customer centric. But then somebody goes and looks at their T's and C's and those T's and C's are 90,000 words long and you can't understand a word of it. They're going to go, oh, okay. So the app is just a marketing tool. It's just a brand thing. And actually deep down, this is what they think of me because they're trying to scare me off with legalese that I can't understand. And actually our T's and C's are about 1500 words long and really easy to understand because we care about that consistency of experience. And so the quality of your writing is about the distance between your best writing and your worst writing. And if that's narrow, you're pretty good. Whereas if you just have a really nice, you know, sign up flow, that's good, but that's not your customer experience. Your customer experiences is if I can't afford to repay this loan, how are you going to treat me? You know, if I'm on hold to customer service, what's the IVR like? How do they funnel me through? You know, can I actually talk to somebody here? If I, you know, have a problem with my app and I need to go and find a help article, is that help article useful? Do they care about their help articles? Do they maintain that stuff? Like that's, that's the customer experience. And so that question about, you know, what does a fintech app need to do? The app is part of the deal. It's not the whole deal. And if the business doesn't genuinely care about customers, then it will be very, very hard to get consistent good writing because you have to care about customers to get that stuff. Right. Well, that's a, that was a really good answer. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Uh, we're getting into our last question. And so we have many listeners. 
that want to work in startup companies as writers, they want to get into the field of UX writing or writing in general for uh, tech companies and have that kind of influence and responsibility. Uh, some of them are doing transition from technical writing, a few of them are um, work as journalists or copywriters. And um, what kind of tips can you recommend to get into the field, like the first step that you can do, land that first gig, get paid for being a writer in, in tech? Yeah. I mean, the thing that has served me best and that I look for in writers that I would ever want to hire is the ability to break down what you're doing and why you're doing it and why it's better. So I see a lot of writers who have great portfolios and they can write well and they have the innate ability to balance a nice sentence or understand the kind of economies of writing on an app screen. But then you say, okay, but why is this choice better than that choice? Or what's the tone of voice that you followed here? What are the practical principles? And they have a harder time unpicking like what it is that they're doing and why it's better. You know, the ability to say, okay, the tone of voice is this. Okay, we're transparent. What does that mean in writing? What does it mean to be transparent in writing? Well, in practical terms, it means not using the passive voice. It means avoiding jargon. It means shorter sentences. It means not using metaphors because they don't translate very well. Like really being able to unpick what you're doing and why and forensically examining your writing so that it flows well for sure, but why does it flow well? What does that mean? And be able to explain that to somebody who wants to hire you is really good because that's what I'm looking for. But also being able to unpick why writing works well to people who aren't writers is crucial, especially if you're going to be in a minority as in a small writing team in a bigger company that doesn't really know or care about writing. So for me coming into Monzo, it was really important that I could sit in a room with product managers and engineers and say, language is connected to trust. And if you write clearly, it makes you seem more human and that has this impact and there's, these are the benefits. And if I just said, this writing is nicer, they'd go, that writing is nicer, but it's not going to have the same compounding benefits. So I would focus on people's ability to show your working, basically, right? Why is your writing good? How do you know that you're a good writer? Like, how do you know that your writing is good is the question I ask most commonly in a, like a screening call or an interview. And it's amazing how often that stumps people, partly because they don't want to seem boastful and that's great. But if you can't measure or know that your writing is good, then how can you know that you're doing a good job for the people you're trying to serve? And so really investing in that side of things is really important. There's a ton of research and evidence out there that supports why writing is effective. Being able to pull on those research and evidence and anecdotes and stuff is really good as well for making the case for better writing. I personally don't look at portfolios when I'm hiring. I know lots of companies do. If you're going to write a portfolio, make sure that it shows that working and the evidence of the impact that it had, because I think that is really important and sets you apart as well. I, always yeah. show impact. Always show impact. Yeah, exactly. Not just like exactly. present your writing, but show like um, how impact your writing created for the business or company that you worked for. Yeah, yeah. And also I would encourage anyone to think about the connectedness of any writing that they do in any role that they do. This is again why we don't have specific UX writers or content writers in that way. Because if the words in the app are great and you make sure the words in the app are always great, but you've never thought about the T's and C's and how they read or the contract that people have to sign when they take out whatever it is that they're taking out, then your user experience is incomplete. And like thinking broadly about the writing that you do, helping people to see those dependencies and connect that stuff up is going to make you 
more useful to the business. It's going to make you more appealing to hiring managers. I think it also just makes you a better writer all around as well. You understand the system a bit better. And exactly. Then, yeah. So you said that you're not looking at portfolios. So and you know that many writers right now want to get into the field. So, you know, they sit around on their portfolio for like months and months and months. Sometimes they say to them, hey, just pick up your last work that you're most proud of, put it in a Google Doc or PDF, just send it over yeah. and push for more opportunities. So what would be your screening process for those people that right now in their home and they're a little bit concerned or not sure how to do that first step? Yeah, I'm in a minority, I think, on the portfolio thing. I know lots and lots of very reputable companies and very good writers, much more experienced than me, do look at portfolios. So I'm not saying don't do one. The reason that I haven't focused on them in, in our hiring processes for writers is one that you never know what the brief really was. So you can never know if the bit of writing in front of you really solved that problem. Most portfolios don't include impact. Like you say, I think they definitely should, but most don't. And also... What did you, as the writer there, do a nice bit of writing or did you solve the underlying problem? Like often the underlying problem is not solved by addressing the brief that you're given. This is why I stopped working in agencies. You get a brief from an agency, from a client that would say, we want you to go away and look at these, rewrite these emails, these five emails. And we'd say, okay, so what's the problem? And they'd say, well, you know, we send out these emails and no one converts on the website. And we'd say, okay, well, let's look at the website. And they say, oh, no, 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 because that's a different budget. That's someone else's thing. Like the underlying problem, it's hard to know if that's solved by one bit of writing. So our hiring process focuses on making sure that people can ask the right questions and explain their thinking properly. So I ask these questions around, how do you know that you're a good writer? where I'm looking for people to be able to say, well, because I look at data points and, you know, I look at customers, I look at the end process and I understand the system that my writing is in and how it interacts with all the other parts of the system. And then I want to see, have you ever tried to go and get involved in the other parts of the system? Do you push to change things at a more fundamental level? Do you dig right down into the base of the problem? And then we do tests. We do a short test which I'm increasingly thinking that we should pay people to do, but we haven't in the past. That's an oversight on our part. I think we should do that. You should pay people for their time. And if we start hiring again, we will. And that test is basically a bit of the kind of writing that you would expect that person to do. But it's more about then being able to ask questions afterwards of, okay, why did you do it this way? And what problems did you encounter? And show me your thinking. It's much less about the actual words on the page. Because if you're at that point of already being interviewed, I've seen that you can write because your cover letter is good and your website is good. And, you know, you've, that's not the issue. It's can you explain the thinking that's so much more important. And again, that's why the portfolio, it's not as important to me. Nice. And thank you. Great answer. Uh, I hope more people could, you know, from now on explain better why they did what they did and how it impacted the business as a whole and not as a small, you know, funnel or sequence inside of the organization because it is really important. You need to have the full context, who was the team that was working on it and all of that. Yeah. And I hope it will inspire many people to, to reach out and find the next writing opportunity. So thank you for that. Welcome, welcome. All right, cool. So thank you so much for your time, Eli. It was a great pleasure to have you today. Thanks and very much, Val. Great chat. Of course, of course. And see you Ciao. Take care. See you later. Thank you for listening to Writers in Tech. If you like our podcast, then leave us a rating and subscribe so you're updated when a new show comes out. For more UX writing goodies, sign up for our UX writing newsletter at uxwritinghub.com. Thanks again. And that's all for this week.